I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Self-Helpful Podcast is brought to you by Ziggler, your premier source for equipping life and leadership coaches. Visit Ziggler.com and let them inspire your true coaching performance. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining me as I talk with today's most important influencers, guides, and change makers to uncover what truly drives them and extract the big takeaway from their personal journeys and their greatest wisdom. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and this is Self Helpful. In this episode, we kick off a series on men, talking about men. And for those who grew up as boys and now live as men, you were raised in a social construct that had certain expectations. Times have changed and evolved, and some of those expectations have changed, but our programming never did and is still not to a great degree. The result is we find ourselves in a culture where men are often confused, frustrated, ashamed, and dissatisfied. And that's not helping men or anyone who comes into contact with them. This is not a call to masculinity per se, and it's also not a call to emasculinity. It's a call to be an authentic and confident human. My expert is Connor Beaton. Connor is the founder of Man Talks, an international organization focused on men's wellness, success, and fulfillment. He is a coach, facilitator, teacher, podcast host, and speaker, helping men from all over the world find purpose, a joy-filled life, and a confident self-identity as a man. Connor really has a, a no BS, a really kind and down-to-earth, but no BS approach coupled with compassionate understanding of our own human limitations. He has coached thousands of men through private coaching, group work, workshops, retreats, and mastermind, and has shared the stage with world-class speakers like Gary Vaynerchuk, Lewis Howes, Daniel Laporte, and many more. I came to Connor through his wife, Vienna Farron, who is a renowned therapist, and she was a recent guest here on the show as well. My muse for the series is Connor's new book. It's called Men's Work, A Practical Guide to Face Your Darkness 
end self-sabotage and find freedom. And his popular podcast, which I was recently a guest on myself, is called Man Talks. I brought Connor on because I am his target audience and I wanted his insight and his guidance. So here we go. Connor, digging into the book. Uh, it was almost painful, which is great since that's a lot about uh, the book's purpose and topic is talking about the pain of men. And as I looked at it, and we're going to get into this, some of the details, but it made me just kind of bubble up and look around and, and think, you know, what, what are what are we doing? Are, hmm. are we having any fun? What is the point? I mean, is that in, in essence, I mean, I feel like a lot of the aspects of the book bring us back to that to step back and go, yeah, what the heck am I doing? Why am I doing this? And and yeah, where's the joy in it? If there's not any joy, what is the purpose? I mean, it, it's I, I, you got to have people come into that as they read their book. To, it kind of breaks everything down and gets us to point zero. Is that what you're finding? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the first line of chapter number one, I think, is a man's work begins in pain. And I, I wrote that specifically because I think for a lot of guys, when they are purposeless or when they don't have a kind of aim or a mission in life or feel like they have a function or feel like they're contributing to something larger or more meaningful, it really does kind of feel like, what the heck is the point? You know, what am I actually doing here? And I think those are the kinds of questions that a lot of men are are asking. And um, I think that's why, you know, there's some public figures that have become very popular and prominent within our culture and our society is because a lot of a lot of men within our Western civilization and within our Western culture are lost. And we're oftentimes lost because we're avoiding the pain that exists in our lives. We don't know what to do with it, whether it's anxiety or, you know, childhood abuse that we haven't addressed or, uh, you know, just anger, um, disappointment about the jobs that we're working or frustration in our marriage. We can't make our relationship work. And, you know, generally speaking, within male culture, we've been sold this notion of strength through suppression right the more that you can stuff it down the stronger that you are and that just doesn't work period full stop end of story you can try it all you want it's just not going to work and so yeah i mean those those are a couple of the pieces <laughs> maybe i'll just pause well there. well you know it's interesting you bring that up i would say you know i have had uh, been privileged to have purpose. I, I knew a lot of what I valued uh, and and have gone forward with purpose. I've never known a morning where I've woken up without interest and curiosity and, and even inspiration. Uh, mm. And then I've got a big family that's incredible. So in that, I, I would think even hearing you, I would think I should be good. But it was the ignoring the pain and we'll get into yeah, defining that. But some of the pains, some of the anxieties, as you said, some of the, I would say some of the masks that I was wearing and not really even aware of and being unaware of that, being unaware of the emotion led to uh, a, a cataclysmic point for me, a burnout. It was, a, mm. it was, a, it, it didn't happen all at once. There was a couple significant spots, but um, it, it led to burnout. And so even there, even with purpose, even with that, 
forgetting about not knowing myself, not being aware of the emotions, not being aware of the performing that I was doing really brought me to burnout and looking at pain, which I had no, I had no, as you talk about in the book, I had no association with. When you talk about mm. trauma, talk about pain, talk about, you know, whatever words you want to be that I, I just didn't associate it with it. I thought, you know, I've had this beaver cleaver life uh, that dates me, but, and to go back and, and there wasn't some big traumas, but there was pain. And as I look around, that's what you have kind of brought to the surface for me. I look around, man, everybody I know, every guy for the most part is living in a decent amount of pain and they're not having fun and it doesn't mm. make any sense at all. That's why I feel like you kind of open up Pandora's box that I don't even know if some guys will want to, but on the other side of it is, well, then just stay in your pain. And that's where we see people going. It's like, we've lost the pulse and nobody stepped back and go, what's going on here? And well, except for you, which is why you're here. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it, it is interesting, right? Because you see a lot of conversation in, in even like mainstream media right now around how young men are lost. Um, you know, fewer men than ever before going to college by 2030, you're going to have for every one male that graduates, you're going to have two females. And so men are, um, you know, it's, it's, and it's the inverse of, you know, in the 1960s, it was the inverse of that. It was for every one woman that, that graduated from college, you had two men. And so we, you know, passed affirmative action and did all this type of stuff to make sure that we could get more women into college. And, and now it's the inverse. So less men are going to college, less men are dating. There's something like 7 million men who are unemployed, but eligible to work uh, in America alone. Um, less men are, you know, being sexually active in between 18 and 29, more men are living at home between 18 and 29 than ever before. And there's a lot of stuff that plays into that, right? The economy, inflation, you know, we, it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff that plays into it, but what it really tells when we start to pull back and look at the broader spectrum and the broader scope of what's happening culturally there's just a lot of men who are suffering, who are in pain, who don't really have a sense of direction, who don't really have a sense of community and camaraderie, right? It's like 15% of American men can't identify a close or best friend. I mean, yeah. that's a tremendous number. It's, it's up you know, exponentially from the, the 70s and 80s, um, where, you know, whereas before, you know, men used to have between five and six close friends, and now they have one. So you can kind of see when you start to look at the research and the data that men are, they're in trouble. You know, we are in trouble and we're having a hard go and a tough time. And I think part of that is what we do with pain, you know, and I'll just say one last thing and I'll hand the, the torch back over to you, which is historically, and from like a, an anthropological sense, we have had something called initiation for a very long time for men, for young boys and young men to go through to help them specifically understand what to do with pain. You know, if you look at any initiatory practice or uh, any, initia any initiation experience, part of it is that a, a young boy or young man will experience some type of pain, whether that's the pain of separation from community, whether it's physical pain, whether it's psychological discomfort. And that teaches him that pain is meaningful in life and that mm. you have to learn how to do something with it. Otherwise it can consume you and your whole life can be 
constructed around the avoidance of pain. So that's one part. And then the other part, and this is where I'll wrap it up, is Richard Rohr had this great quote. He's a Franciscan monk. He said, um, unless a man is brought on a journey of powerlessness, he'll always abuse power. And so part of the, the other part of initiation is that initiation brings young men and young boys through an experience of powerlessness so that they understand their relationship to power. And I think in our culture today, that's the other part that a lot of men are grappling with is their relationship to their own sense of power and their own sense of powerlessness. Okay. There, yeah. There's so many, so many directions I want to go. I, I'm going to start drop a whole though. bunch on you. <laughs> I, it's, no, it's so good. It's, it's, it's right in line with where I want to go. I, I think I want to start to some degree with the roles, the role of a man. And my relating to it, Connor is with religion. So I grew up in mm -hmm. a very black and white religious structure and I joke some now, though it's not that funny, but back in my you know, 25 years old, 30 years old, I was so certain. I knew what was up, man. And now at 52, I have less certainty than I've ever had, ever. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, take religion, spirituality. I mean, I have blown that up and, uh, and I'm aware that, it, that, that it's difficult. It's cumbersome. Uh, somebody, there was a podcast. I can't remember the guy's name. It was from a mega church. And he talked about this and he said, but then it's difficult when you blow up the container that, you know, you're looking for some kind of container. Otherwise we we don't know what to do. And, and I look at, you know, the containers of our lives. We need some understanding, some clarity, some structure with everything that we do. So now with men, as I grew up in, you know, in, even in that environment, there was kind of a container. This is what a man is. This is what a man does. I don't think it was all good. I don't think mm. it was all healthy. It wasn't all equal. It wasn't all fair. So with that said, but it was a container. And now we've blown some stuff up that needed to be, I think, just like religion needed to be blown up. We need to blow that crap out of there. Mm. But then here we are. And so what is the role and the responsibility? And it seems like most of it for men has been vilified and minimized. And I've, I don't, I don't know that I've suffered from that specific piece, maybe some, but I've been, I've questioned, I found myself just uncertain with a lot. Even I saw, I'm talking to my sons and I, some of the counsel I would have given them a decade ago, I, I don't know how to give now, man, it's a different landscape. And so, mm. you know, speak to that of just the, does it feel like that? Like, like, like as men, there's just this uncertainty of like, who, what, what role am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to be masculine? Am I supposed to be strong? Am I, am I supposed to, I mean, it's, I know it's a goofy analogy and it gets into some muddy water, but am I supposed to open the door for a woman? I, I that's how I was right. I still tend to do that. And I've had not often, they usually, usually think it, but I've had a couple give me the evil eye. Like I just uh -huh. minimize that. And I, I guess I'm sensitive to that, but again, it leaves me in a place of going, I don't often know what the heck to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it is, I think you're articulating very well the challenge that a lot of men are having in modern culture. You know, I've worked with tens of thousands of men over the past decade from around the world and cross-culturally, cross-religion. I grew up um, like you did, you know, um, in a fairly sort of like doctrinal religion, right? It was Roman Catholic. And so it was pretty, pretty strict and like very clear. And the roles really have changed. You know, the roles within our culture and our society that used to create 
and, and I'm not saying it's a bad or a good thing. I'm just talking about, you know, the, right. the structure of it. But it used to create, when you have a role and you have a function and it's articulated and it's clear, it gives you, as a man especially, a sense of here's my function. Yeah. Here's my mission. You know, here's what I'm supposed to do. And then I can coordinate my day around that. And so if you look at, you know, historically, and again, I'm not saying that it's a, a good or bad thing that that existed or has broken apart. It's, it's not a commentary on it. But historically, what that's done is it's given men a sense of uh, a role. And that role has often been to provide and to protect and to preside over something. And that can feel very good for some men some of the time, and it can feel very constricting for some men some of the time. But what we know unequivocally is that that has changed. And how do we know that? If you just look at one data point, which is um, the breadwinners within the home, and they still use that term, by the way. This isn't me using that term. This is like the economic term. It's gluten-free breadwinners. It's uh, gluten <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah. Gluten-free breadwinner. I'm going to have to remember that. Thank you. Um, so, you know, in the, in the 70s, 11% uh, of American households, women were the primary breadwinner. And now I think it was 2020 that this data came out. It was 42 to 43% of American households, women are now the primary breadwinner. So when you think about male roles within our culture and our society that men have oftentimes been told by men, by women, by culture, by religion, by whatever, right? The industrial complex, et cetera, that your role as a man is to provide specifically financially. And now you have almost half of American households where women are out earning their male counterparts. Suddenly your role is very unclear. And again, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, that these things have changed, that we have progress, that women are out in the workforce. I'm not, I'm not saying yay or nay to that. I'm just saying that because of that, roles have changed dramatically. And I think a lot of men are like, okay, so if I make 60 grand or 100 grand or whatever it is that I make, but my partner makes double what I make or triple what I make, now what's my role in the relationship? because historically it was that I needed to provide. And if, I, if I'm not the main provider for my family, then what do I need to be doing? How do I need to shift? Where's my spot? So I think there is a good amount of confusion and role um, deconstruction that has been happening culturally within our society. Well, and, and to bring that, yeah, the other side or and other side of the pressure of that as well. So I mentioned to you when we were off camera, I'm going on an adventure tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to meet 11 guys and we're going to go on this epic mountain bike ride. It's uh, called the, the uh, Monarch Crest Trail. So just, just cool stuff. So these guys, most of them are, are, are older, uh, 50, 50 is probably the average age, 50, 60, something like that's the average age, but just outdoors enthusiasts, fit guys. And one of them, which is uh, one of my closest friends out of the group, he is a stay-at-home dad. So he and his wife met, and they he was working at a bike shop. She was gonna she was starting med school, and so that trajectory obviously provides a lot more income. So they had kids, had two boys, wanted to homeschool them. So he's staying home, and she's off there, makes a ton of money. They you know have epic adventures that they can afford, whatever. It's a great life. I think he's totally thrilled with it. And yet, when we come to this group, invariably some guy, some new guy or whatever is going to say, hey, you know, so you know, Bo, what do you do? You'll hear the pause and it's, I, I'm a 
I'm a proud stay at home dad. And, you know, but he has to explain it. My wife's a doctor. You don't just take it uh, easily because it's still got that cultural construct because the guy mm -hmm. he's talking to owns a fortune 500 company. And then, you know, the other guy is, you know, some, some big wig, you know, name, uh, uh, well, or me, you know, I'm an author, a podcaster. I got my own thing going and he's not earning a dime. Um, yeah. and we don't, we still have that. I think it's gotten a lot more normal and maybe in certain parts of the country it's gotten a lot more normal and yeah, not to give a commentary. It's great. I think he loves it. And yet when you're with another group of guys, it's still, uh, uncomfortable and you have to see it. And I feel bad for that. It makes me uncomfortable. I wish somebody wouldn't even ask, what do you do? Let's not, nobody can talk about their vocation. Okay. We're going to be here for a day together. <laughs> Everybody just, just, you know, go ride your bikes. And, and so there's that pressure as well that I see guys struggling with. Yeah. I mean, part of, part of what I wrote in the book is like, there has been this connection historically that has tied a man's worth to what he does. Sure. And that has existed for, you know, forever and ever and ever, right? That, you know, your quote unquote value, whether that's social or, you know, with potential, you know, mating partners, um, your value it has been linked historically to what you can do, what you can provide, what you can, you know, sort of procure. And I think one of the challenges is that a, a lot of men know that's that's still today and if, again if you look at the data and the research um a lot of women still want and desire a man i think it's uh, 75 to 80 percent of women who are are polled and asked still want a man who is able to either make or earn as much as her or more and so a lot of guys know like you know women still want me to or expect me to make or earn more than them and so there is this sort of very strange social dynamic that shows up yeah. that says you as a man, your worth and your value is connected to what you do and how much you can earn and how much you can provide, um, not just financially, but, you know, in sort of all ways, it might just be social connections, et cetera. And then a lot of guys have this sense that, you know, women still want a man who is able to provide. And that again, that's backed up by data and research. And so I think it's a bit of a strange conundrum, you know, because I do think that a lot of men, um, they've, you know, there is that sort of movement within our culture of being the stay at home dad, and they're fulfilled, and they ha they're happy, and they love it. And they're, you know, they're crushing it, right? They see like the, the TikTok reels and the Instagram, you know, stories of the guys that are, you know, that are that are the stay at home dads that are just really loving it. And so who's to say that that's wrong? Right. Who's to say that that isn't a man's mission or a man's purpose or a man's function? And so I, I do think that there's a bit of a, a conundrum both within culture and society and within male culture, because we haven't really pivoted um, with the times necessarily. We haven't really um, pivoted to meet the changes that have happened within our within our culture and within our society in terms of the workforce changing and you know the family systems changing and all those types of things and so it it's a conundrum you know i really feel for a lot of guys who are out there we've had men that have come out to our men's weekends who are stay-at-home dads you know or whose wives are you know a corporate executive and you know earn three to four times as much as them and it's a thing because I think for a lot of guys, they're worried about what will other men say, 
you know, yeah. what will other men, what will other women think? You know, will I be perceived as less manly, as less masculine, as less of a man? You know, or all of the tropes, right? Will it, you know, is uh, will I, you know, will my buddies think that? Uh, you know, my wife wear quote unquote, wears the pants, right? All of these sort of sayings really still show up within our culture. And last thing I'll say is it's interesting because I, I watched my dad go through this. My dad worked for the federal government. He worked for the Canadian version of the IRS. Uh, not super exciting, um, <laughs> but but he did it and he, you know, he seemed to enjoy it, which is cool. And my stepmom was the national VP of one of the largest telecommunications companies in Canada. And so she, you know, dramatically out earned him. And so it was a very interesting dynamic. And I remember him, you know, talking once in a while about how, you know, some of his male friends or counterparts would be like, oh, you're a kept man, you know, this and that. And so I think there's still this sort of stigma and stereotype that says that as the man, in order to be the man, you should be out earning your partner, you should be mm -hmm. the primary provider. And so I think it puts men into a bind who, you know, maybe are very happy working in a trade, you know, and, uh, you know, being an electrician or, you know, being a plumber or, you know, having a small business and having their income be sort of set. So I think it's a very big uh, challenge that puts a lot of strain on relationships and, and the individual. Yeah, I do as well. I, I do. I, I have some frustration with the I'm going to use the word again because I think men have been vilified for a lot of things and, mm -hmm. and me too. And, and I would put myself uh, and you at somewhat at the top of the, the list of, you know, white, uh, male, uh, I was going to say American, but I think you're Canadian. Is that right? Canadian. Yeah. yeah I live in American. I live in America now. I've been in America okay. for several years now. Yeah. Got it. But vilified for some of the structures. And I think some of them rightly so. And yet I also look at my own life and, you know, my wife and I met and I, we, we talked equality. We're going to, you know, we can, whoever wants to do whatever. And, and then she got pregnant and, mm. you know, grew a baby and birthed that baby, nursed that baby. So it took her out of work some, and then we had another, and then we had another, of course we had a whole bunch of them then. And it, it did, it took her out. I didn't necessarily have some big career aspiration at the time, but it was just the dynamics of that, that somewhat does create that structure. So I am out earning the bread to, so to say the gluten-free gluten bread, free bread. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, and she's at home and now, you know, time goes on and, and I've been out working and have gained a lot of credibility and traction or whatever. And now as the kids are older, she's gone, but she has gone to work really a career for the first time. And yet she's having to start, you know, at, at the bottom and that can feel unfair. And yet it's just a structure that, um, yeah, it, it is what it is to some, to some degree, but yeah, I, I just, I, I feel for, I have compassion for the, the lack of the container that we have in, in the culture today. And then to go towards the pain in general, you know, which mm. is some, and, and getting into the emotions and you mentioned that earlier, and I want to give a lot of focus to that, that, yeah, as we know, we're brought up to not, you know, as guys to not pay attention to the emotion, man, you're out there in the sports field. We don't have time to cry, get out there and kill somebody uh, or the battlefield or, or whatever it may be. And, you know, I, I look at that and I think even in my own upbringing, um, there wasn't we look negative emotions was looked at as kind of it's, it's not productive, which to some degree it's not, it's not mm -hmm. and the negative emotion being there stewing in it doesn't get you anywhere. Let's get you somewhere positive. It makes sense. 
And yet there wasn't space for, and gosh, my, my, I had it a lot better than my parents did, both of them, but it wasn't really space to go, okay, why are you feeling that way, Kevin? Why are you, or at least I don't remember that. And I may have pushed it off as far as I know that I, I was already into boyhood and I did, oh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about feelings. I feel <laughs> sad. Leave me alone. Go away. I'll get over it. And it, we don't have the space to do that. We're not taught to, we're taught the opposite. And that feels so pithy and elementary to say, but as you talk about in your book, it's just rampant. It is rampant. I, I know very few guys who had any learning and any space, any permission to be in touch with their feelings and to, as you know, as you talk about, to be able to manage them well and understand them and cope with them well. I, and I didn't, I didn't even, I was completely ignorant of that. And I see, I feel like I see that with a lot of guys. They're not, they're not knowingly stuffing or rejecting. It just hasn't had a place. It's like, I don't speak German either. I never had any reason to. <laughs> I studied German for a couple of years, but Did it's you? pretty terrible still. But um, <laughs> no, I, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head, right? I think here's what I'll say. After working with men for a long time and working with a lot of men from so many different backgrounds, I have learned a few pri like prime things. One is we love feeling competent, yeah. period. Men love to feel and know that they are competent. Yet we have allowed socially and culturally a type of maturation process for men that doesn't allow for a type of emotional competency. So men largely do not feel competent when it comes to emotional communication, sometimes just communication in general, understanding their own psyche. Yet this is the thing that they're craving deeply because we all want to have a sense of mastery. But what we've been taught and what has sort of been passed down, and we could talk about you know, some reasons of why, but I think it's maybe a little less relevant than the, than the impact and the outcome. What we've been taught is stuff it down, suck it up, don't talk about it, don't deal with it. So we've actually been taught emotional neglect. So what, what's challenging for a lot of guys is that they get into relationships, they get into the workforce, some challenges start to happen, whether it's with their partner or their spouse or somebody at work. And there's this very deep frustration that starts to build, but they don't feel competent to be able to traverse the emotional landscape. And that becomes very frustrating. And so what happens is that a lot of men will revert and, uh, and move towards some type of coping mechanism, right? Booze, porn, weed, et cetera, right? Video games, constant, you know, uh, eating junk food before bed, et cetera. So <clears throat> we, we as men have done a disservice to our sons, to the, the generations of men um, that have come before us and that are coming after us in teaching emotional intelligence and having a type of mastery and competency in this area. And I, in the book, I wrote about how what most of us are taught is, and I, I think I said this already, like strength through suppression. So how you become strong as a man is suppressing what you're feeling, which again, doesn't lead to any kind of competency. I, I don't think that you would use that, right? If you were an electrician, it was like, oh, I don't know how to wire up this fire alarm. It's like, oh, don't worry about it. Just don't wire it up. It's like, no, you, you, gotta, you gotta learn how to, how to do that part, right? Uh, and then the other thing is, 
I wrote about what I called the one rule of men. And the one rule of men is, is pretty much it's very similar to Fight Club, right? Which is you don't talk about Fight Club. That's the first rule of Fight Club. You don't talk about it. The one rule of men is you do not talk about what it's like to be a man who is struggling or suffering or in pain or confused or lost. So if you're a man who has a parent that's dying, you don't talk about it. If you're a man who feels insecure in his marriage, you don't talk about it. If you're a man who's struggling at work or feeling depressed, or you just don't talk about it. You just try and figure that stuff out on your own. And that becomes crippling. So isolation becomes the tactic that a lot of men are using. And what happens in the background of our mind is I don't feel competent emotionally with my own internal realm. I don't feel like I really know myself. I don't feel like I really understand myself. And I feel like I'm on a little bit of an island. And for most men, that is, it's not something that they, that we think about, right? I didn't think about it when I was lost. I didn't think like, oh, I just don't feel emotionally competent. No, I just felt lost. I felt confused. I felt frustrated and angry. You know, that's, that's how it sort of uh, came out. I distanced myself in my relationships. I would push people away. I would be unfaithful. I would act out. You know, I'd turn to alcohol or, or drugs or something like that. And this is what a lot of guys do. But behind that, it's I don't feel competent with myself. I don't feel like I can lead myself. I don't trust myself to make good decisions. And because of that, I feel out of control and really frustrated. Friends, I'm pretty candid about my lack of financial prowess. Money and numbers are fairly Greek to me, so I need a lot of guidance. One of my closest friends is a wildly successful wealth manager, and I'm working on some financial literacy and just continually seeking guidance. So I ask you to check out yahoofinance.com. Nobody knows it all on Yahoo Finance is a, an incredible resource for the rookies like me or the seasoned investors. You know, before my dad passed away recently, Dave Ramsey and his wife, Sharon, flew down to visit. We all got to spend a day together. And I was at yahoofinance.com just now. I saw multiple news flashes from Dave and other people that you respect. And they're hitting so many of the hottest areas in finance today. So it's a place to get a snapshot of all aspects of your financial interests. And if you have them, your portfolios. I hadn't realized Yahoo Finance is the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. So for your comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. One more time. YahooFinance.com. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, 
but getting them to actually give their payment info is. And Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to think about 20,000 breaths. According to the EPA, the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to a hundred times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and Air Doctor is just the best. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code KEVIN, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. And as I hear you talk about it, it's a double negative. So I feel mm-hmm. incompetent in it. Well, let's go talk about it. I don't want to. I, I, yeah, I, no, I'd rather no. we go do something <laughs> I feel competent about. Yeah, right. let's all, hey guys, let's all get together and feel really incompetent for a day and talk about something we know nothing about. And yeah, that word, Connor, is when I came to my own breaking point, I wish it was longer ago than it actually was. Uh, But when I did in this arena and went into therapy, went into marriage therapy, went into, you know, individual therapy, that was the word I used so often. Mm -hmm. Kevin, how are you feeling? I I don't know. I don't know. And, and, and I say, I I feel, I say this to my wife, I just, I I feel incompetent. I would say incompetent and impotent uh, as well in under and in, in knowing what I feel and knowing how to respond and looking at emotions. I felt I used to feel that way with my kids in the realm of their emotions and they're trying to be compassionate for them. It just wasn't again, it wasn't a language that I had. So, yeah, you say in the word incompetent and you're right. The fear I'm trying to remember, Connor, it was. Maybe it was with, uh, no, I have a new, I have a new therapist. I started with a couple of weeks ago. It was the first uh, or second meeting with him and he was digging in and came out with that. What's Kevin, what's your biggest fear? What are you afraid of? And it pondered a little bit. And I, I, I don't know if I used the word competent, but it, that's what I meant. It, I think it was not being able to come through, not being able to show up, not being there for my family, specifically my family, but those who need me. I mean, that's what I based my identity on. I am Superman. I am God. I take care of everything. I fix everything. And if you take that away, well, as that was taken away from me, or as I, as we were trying to strip it down, it seemed, okay, this is good and healthy. And I, I'm now I'm aimless. Now we're back to the, the I'm back. I'm, I'm back to not having a container. Like, well, that's, what's my purpose. So it was a good breaking down, but initially I said, this is even worse. This is even worse now. 
I'd rather not go there, which is probably why we don't have a lot of guys that are entering into this. And yet they just continue on in pain, which we probably should start the show. The hope of this is, well, I'll let you state that. What would you say? You dig into this. So here's, here's a guy, you, you resonate with this. You don't understand your emotions. You feel incompetent. You're dealing with pain. What's on the other side? Well, what's on the other side is a much deeper sense of self-trust, of confidence, of clarity in terms of the direction that you want to go in your life, in your relationship, in your work, in your career, in your vocation, um, and a deeper sense of self-leadership. Like I talk a lot about self-leadership because I think in, in many ways, a lot of men we're trying to, what, what we really desire is a, is a sense of, I can lead myself through hard times. I can lead myself to make good decisions. I can lead myself to, you know, um, create direction in my life and, and move myself towards building the type of life and the type of freedom and the type of uh, connection and relationships that I ultimately want. And so that's, that's all what's on the other side. And it requires us as men to face the elements of ourselves that we don't like, that we don't want to know about, that we are rejecting, that we don't want other people to know about, right? We have to kind of be willing to go and engage and traverse the internal territory that we're afraid of. A lot of men, I'll just tell you a little quick story, very, very brief, that sort of articulates this. I worked with I've worked with a lot of guys from military, former Navy SEALs, et cetera. And one of the stories that I wrote in the book was about a Navy SEAL who had come to work with me because he was having relationship challenges. He loved this woman, wanted to be close to her, and he was very successful as a SEAL. He was very, very successful as a Navy SEAL, which, you know, even just becoming a Navy SEAL, <laughs> it's like you've, you've gone through some stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, and I was leading him through an exercise and, you know, he had a lot of stuff come up, he kind of got emotional. And we were talking about what's disconnecting him from his partner because he was having a lot of anger and frustration coming up within the relationship. It was causing him to push her away. And he had no idea why. He just couldn't figure out why. And when it really came down to it, I walked him through this exercise and he realized that he'd been holding on to a lot of grief and a lot of sadness that he had never let himself feel watching, you know, close friends die on the battlefield, um, losing people, you know, that were in his squadron and never allowing himself to actually grieve that loss. And because of that, he was holding on to all these emotions that he just didn't know were there. And then he didn't know what to do with them once that when they would come up. So he would feel sad. He would feel lonely. He'd feel disconnected. Uh, and he wouldn't know what to do with them. And after walking him through this exercise, <laughs> you know, I, I paused and I said, how are you doing? How are you feeling? What came up? And he said, you know, I would rather rush a machine gun nest in Afghanistan than go through this exercise because yeah. at least there I feel competent and I know what to do. Totally. And when all of these emotions come up, I feel like I have no idea what to do with this grief and this pain that I've been carrying around. And so part of our work is to start to learn how to carry that grief, whether it's the grief of being abused as a, as a boy, you know, watching your parents go through a divorce, 
you getting divorced, right? Losing custody of your children, whatever it is that you're carrying around, beginning to learn how to be with your own emotions and your own internal experience is the thing that is going to sort of give you directions to your inner realm, to your inner territory. So I think that's where men need to start. And that's the outcome. That's where they will yeah. end up is a deeper sense of self-trust and, and leadership, uh, clarity, direction, but also relationship. You know, like it will be much easier to be in relationship with people that you love because you won't feel like you have to keep them at arm's reach. Your term of self-leadership doesn't sound like rocket science. And yet, for some reason, it hit me, Connor. Like, that's not a term that we use. And we talk so much about leadership. My gosh, I'm so tired of seeing books with the term leadership in the title. Just everybody out there, if you're writing a book, please don't put leadership. I'm so, it's so, <laughs> it's so overused. I, I, I'm burnt out on it. But self-leadership, actually, I would, I would buy that book. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a different type. And yeah, how often we talk about leading others, but do we give enough focus to self leadership? I, I, I may come back to that, Connor. I, I do. You mentioned fight club a minute ago, which of course I've, I've not only seen it, I actually bought the book. A lot of people didn't even realize I didn't for a long time. It's, there's actually a book as well. So I bought the book on it and it was just, yeah, the intriguing, the nature of, Man, I think anybody could relate to it to a degree, but I, I'm a guy, so I did take it from that aspect of being, you talk about that, the, the, the domesticated man. And it's so interesting, Connor. I experienced that. We had my first kid. I was a pro cyclist. We got, you know, got pregnant and uh, had a little boy and he had a bunch of medical mm -hmm. issues. So we ended up in the hospital for months and just killed or ended my, ended my racing at that point. And for the next two years, I worked. It was my only two years having an actual uh, real job, you know, as an employee. Uh, worked there, wore a suit uh, that I don't even own a suit anymore. But, you know, I had, I talk about, so for me, it was, it was ultimate domestication. But man, it's just what was needed. Um, we had this, this kid with special needs and, and whatnot. But two years later, my wife conspired with the local bike shop owner, not to just get me a bike, but to get me training again. And she said, Kevin, just go train. You're just a better man. And I think she, she needed, she knew I needed something that I was competent in. I needed something that I was masculine and I was virile in. And it, we did it. And I've, I've been doing it ever since. That was the only two years of my life that I wasn't out doing something. And it was, it was kind of the fight club thing. I needed to go out there and test myself and, and be fully there. And yeah, tomorrow I'll be on top of a mountain with a bunch of guys and everybody will be mile wide smiles. And no matter what they're doing, they're out there. They feel competent. They feel, uh, uh virile, you know, they, feel, I mean, we need that. And I, I feel like your book too, kind of gave that. I found myself validating that like, man, we've got to go back. You, you need some outlet. Mm -hmm in your life. You need that part of that. I mean, I don't want to totally get in sketchy water talking about what domesticated is, but I mean, there is a part of all of us, a women too, who wants to be free, wants to be full, wants to be creative, wants to uh, test themselves. Want, I, I think that that's a part of us. And yeah, why do we, it's, it feels like, again, one of those, why did we leave that? Why did we leave our, our schoolhood and sports and different outlets, dance, whatever it may be that you did. And then we get in and go, okay, now, you know what? All the fun's over. I told my kids, this, my older kids, please don't get to that point of go, okay, now the fun's over. Now I just got to be responsible, get a job, pay the bills. That's terrible. Yeah. I mean, who's selling this? 
why are we, why are we buying it? I guess would be the other question on that. And it's not about, I don't know. I mean, how do you, how do you counsel guys on that? Cause we do have responsibilities. We do want a home. We do want a car. We do want kids usually and to take care of them too. But man, just to buy into that and we end up, I'm just a workhorse. I, I felt that at times. And I, I don't want to be. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of layers to what you're saying. And I think you're, you're really articulating something that's important. Uh, George Carlin is one of my favorite comedians and you yeah. know, God rest his soul. He was amazing, but you know, what you're really articulating is the American dream. And the American dream is to live this very comfortable life, right? That's, that's yeah. a part of the dream that is sold is that you're going to have this good house and this nice family and you're going to live this very, very comfortable, easy life. And that's the, that's the fraudulent aspect of it. And, and Carl, and I'll just come back to him for a second. He said, it's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. And I love that. Wow. I love that notion wow. because we, especially as men, we thrive in challenge. We thrive in challenge. It doesn't, you don't have to compete all the time. You can, right? Competition can be fun and engaging, but Within our masculine nature, within the masculine core, are a few simple drives and desires within pretty much every man that I've ever come across, met with, worked with, et cetera, talked to. One is the desire and the drive for freedom to be able to articulate and start to create a life where you feel free, whether that's the freedom to choose where and when you travel or who you date or, you know, running your own business. Every man has to take the time and do the hard work to begin to articulate the type of freedom that feels important to them. The other piece is being, being able to live at an edge some type of an edge, being able to push your edge, being able to see what am I capable of psychologically, mentally, emotionally, sexually, physically, financially, uh, economically, what can, what am I capable of in this lifetime? Every man has this urge and this desire, or, you know, the masculine core, if we want to call it that has this urge and this desire to see what am I capable of, right? Coming back to this sense of competency and capability. And so if we don't provide ourselves with the opportunity to see what we are capable of as men in some area of our life, whether that's in our business, uh, as creatives, right, with our artistry, with our music, uh, physically with our bodies, sexually with our partners, if we don't have areas of our life where we're pushing our edge and all we're doing is carrying responsibility, that is a recipe for depression and disaster because all that we will be left with is this notion of what the hell is the point? I wake up, I have my same routine in the morning, I go to do my nine to five job, I come home, I pay my bills, all to do what? To retire and then die. Is like, is that it? Well, that's not very engaging or exciting. And so for a lot of men, what they're lacking is opportunities in their life where they can challenge themselves, where they can push themselves. It doesn't matter if they're 15, 35, or 65, men want to challenge themselves. And we have to find yeah. outlets for us to begin to do that. And a lot of men are overly domesticated because they bought into this idea that the good life is, you know, whatever, making 
six figures and watching Netflix at night and eating popcorn. It's like, that's not it. You know, we need to have some kind of a relationship with discomfort and to actively pursue that discomfort because there's something in that discomfort that tells us who we are and what we enjoy and what we'll tolerate and what we can tolerate and what we won't tolerate and what we don't want to tolerate. And so our sense of psychological, spiritual limitations and boundaries, uh, our sense of freedom in the world is dictated. We begin to learn it by going out and challenging ourselves. Now, I'm not advocating for extreme sports and saying that you need to go out and do that. You might challenge yourself by taking up a woodworking hobby. You might challenge yourself by going and learning jujitsu. You might challenge yourself in any number of ways. But it is essential, I would say, in my own opinion, to the masculine part of ourselves to have probably multiple outlets in our life where we are pushing our edge, where we are challenging ourselves. And I have a group of men that I meet with every single week. Um, it's 10 of my closest friends. We all live, you know, in different places all over North America. But almost every day, we are sharing in that group how we've challenged ourselves, how we are pushing our edge. And that might be physically, it might be within our business, it might be a declaration, it might be within our creativity and our artistry or our relationship, our marriage, you know, with our kids. But we are sharing, here's how I'm challenging myself today. And I can tell you that every single one of the men in, those, in the group, myself included, I've never felt more alive because we have created an environment of brotherhood where we are challenging and pushing one another and we're sharing that challenge together. And that creates a, a deep sense of camaraderie and brotherhood that most men are missing because a lot of men don't have what I call challenge-oriented relationships. And those challenge-oriented relationships with other men, I believe, gives men a type of sustenance or psychological nutrition that we actually need. Like we get this deep type of uh, psychological nutrient within that space that is hard to articulate. But when you come out of it, you're like, oh man, like that's exactly what I needed. <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to dig into that with you, Connor, in part two. Cool. So uh, stay tuned, folks. We're, we'll dig into that. I, I want to, cause I want to come back right now to you just talking about that need in us because yeah, what I see is if we don't, we can't not do it. So we can't not, uh, I should say, we can't not touch it. We have to be, we have to, and if we can't, if we're not going to do it, then we're going to do it voyeuristically, hmm. which I would say is, I'm not going to totally diss it. I was, I'm going to say it's primarily a counterfeit. I, that's, that's probably hard because I mean, guys that love sports, you know, that love, uh, we all love the movie, the, the epic, you know, hero movie. And I love those things too. So not to diss those, but if that's only it, I'll never forget watching. I got into tennis, pro tennis, mm. uh, in my, as a, as a young guy and well, no, gosh, I must've been before, before I was even 18, I was still at home and I was watching, I was really into it. And my dad came along and he said, so you're just going to watch it or are you going to actually do it? And at first I thought he was being an ass, but, uh, after that I thought, well, that's fair. And so I went out and did it. And I do look at that and go, when do we give up being on the field to just come and watch it? And it's, it's, it's a far cry from actually doing something, but yeah, we become this voyeuristic, uh, 
community of men. And to what you said, I appreciate it. It's not like we got to go out and be a barbarian and, and do extreme sports. Like you said, I made me think of uh, Neil Pasricha. I don't know if you know him. He's mm-hmm. a well-known author and he's kind of on the tour right now too. We'll probably get him back on the show, but I remember him talking about, I think it was every week or maybe once a month, he goes out and just does something, something he's never done. I'm going to go do salsa dancing, just jump into it. You know, or I'm going to go, I'm going to go to a rodeo. I'm going to go, I just do something that he's never experienced. And that's out of his comfort zone. Like you said, I thought, man, that's what you're speaking to. And you also said business and a lot of people, I mean, we get to do that, uh, be on the edge. I, I appreciate you saying that do it in our business. So it's not, everybody has to go do an extreme sport. Now I will be tomorrow. I'll be on top of a, of a mountain, you know, careening down at high speed <laughs> on a mountain bike trot. And I love it, man. It's, it's like flow and it, yeah, it, it feels, um, it feels amazing, but I just, I feel like we can't not do it. Mm. If we're not going to do it, we end up doing it voyeuristically and that feels dangerous as well. And I think still you're, it's, doesn't, it doesn't fill the same void. Do you think? Not at all. You know, I think that the, the domestication, you know, there's many ways to talk about the domestication of men within our culture and our society. But I think one of the most clear ways is that the domesticated man watches other people live their life and the undomesticated man gets into the living of his own life. And those are two wildly different things. You know, our, our society is designed in a way to make it very easy for you to watch other people live the life that you ultimately would like to live. Whether that's, I mean, you can watch people work out, you can watch documentaries of people, you know, getting into the shape of their life, you can watch the documentaries of people doing the mountain biking, you can watch YouTube channels of people hiking the hikes that you want to hike and visiting the places that you want to visit. You can pretty much sit on the sidelines and watch people do everything that you would like to do in this life and never have to go and do it yourself. And I think we risk when we do that, we, we risk, and this might seem a little esoteric or, you know, spiritual woo-woo, but we risk letting a part of our soul die. You know, our soul, our deeper part of us, however we want to articulate that, the, the depth of who we are wants to pursue the things that are hard, that are challenging, that have a little bit of risk involved, you know, that are going to bring us into contact with our fears. And I, what I'll say there is I interviewed a gentleman named Dr. James Hollis, who is one of the most prominent Jungian psychologists in the world. And he said that a, a man's life is governed by fear. And so most of us as men, we, are, we have designed a life where we never actually have to go out and be afraid, afraid of rejection, afraid of failing, afraid of getting it wrong afraid of being an amateur, you know, of being the student. And when we can start to really live our lives in an undomesticated way, what really starts to happen is we live with fear on a daily basis, right? It's like I've started doing Muay Thai and kickboxing. It's like, I don't like sucking at things. You know, I don't like not being good at things, but I'm starting, I've started, um, you know, three or four months ago, 
I started at zero, you know, I did some boxing when I was younger and whatnot, but I started, I knew nothing about Muay Thai and kickboxing. And so that journey has put me in contact with the fear of not being good enough, the fear of being incompetent, the fear of getting it wrong or looking, you know, silly or whatever it is. And that is a beautiful gift. And I think that as men, it's something that we crave is to start to move in that direction. And I think that plays into our relationships as well, is that a lot of, you know, my wife is a marriage and family therapist who you've had on the show. Um, we've worked with a lot of couples together. I've worked with a lot of men and then worked with them and their partners. And a lot of what happens relationally, I'll just touch on this and hand this over again, is we as men get very comfortable within the relationship and we stop pursuing any type of discomfort within the relationship. And I heard uh, a sex therapist out of the UK, I can't remember her name, uh, Tracy something. And she said, it's not men who get bored sexually in relationships, it's women. Because we as men will oftentimes will take the consistent, you know, sex once or twice a week, even if it looks the same, most guys will just take that routine and that regiment over and over and over again. And that that would sort of be sufficient. But women need more spontaneity, they need more differentiation, they need more variety. And so for a lot of us as men, we get into these relationships. And what happens in the long term is that we stop pushing our own edge relationally. We stop looking, how do I expand with my partner? How do I push my edge with her in our communication, in our depth of intimacy, in how I share appreciation for her, in our sexual connection? And that over time will slowly erode the relationship because it'll become very comfortable. And comfort does not equal polarity. Comfort does not equal sexual tension. And so part of our role as men, and I'm just making a case for how it shows up in all of our life, part of our role within a relationship is to lead the charge towards some healthy discomfort. And that might mean buying a book for you and your partner, listening to a podcast that's sort of out of the norm, a little on the edge. It might mean signing up for a workshop, um, whatever it is, but to lead you and your partner towards some type of an edge on a consistent basis. It doesn't mean every day or every week, but often enough that it keeps the kind of spontaneity and the polarity and the vibrancy alive between you and your partner. And it is interesting as, you, as you're talking, Connor, I'm thinking about, I mean, so many people think back to the, you know, the honeymoon phase. We all joke about it and go, yeah, but that's gotta, that's gotta end. And you think back then when you first met in those first years and, and how vibrant and, and exciting it was and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we get married and then the point is, yeah, I mean, again, it's one of those things of why did we buy into this? Now it's just, well, now we just get comfortable. We're just partners, you know, and let's get rid of all that. That's a, that, that, that phase has passed. And that's terrible. No. I, I don't want that. I want new. And even that, the idea of yeah, going with your spouse or significant other and just experiencing kind of like Neil Pasricha, you know, go experience something new, take up a dance class, do something that maybe you're not going to drum up discomfort in your you know relationship necessarily, but go do something different that gives you a different perspective. Seems so smart. Well, I want to take that and use it as a reason to get into a topic that you brought up in the book that I really honed into. And it was vulnerability. Mm. And I'll own this one, Connor. This has been something that my wife's literally said, I, I, 
I would like more vulnerability from you. Again, and I, I'm incompetent. I don't know what that even looks like. And there's that aspect kind of from a, a religious standpoint of when you're weak, you're strong. I think there's a, there's a scripture or a song or something when you're weak and, and I'm, and, and I've done it. Okay. But to what you said, and I'm going to just give a quick paraphrase that guys, this is, this is worth buying the book just to read this section on vulnerability because Connor hits it so well and says, we, we won, we don't, we don't want to. And then when we do, when we try so often, women can't handle it. That, that should be like a rally cry. There should be guys going, yes, because I felt that. I've done it with my wife. So I'm going, what, what a week I strong. I just shared that with you. That did not work. That scared you to death. <laughs> yeah, what happened? Okay, and, you, and Yeah, what happened? And you coming back and saying what they really want. It, it was kind of a, and I'll, I'll let you unpack it. It was, it was not that. It was not just going and just sharing all your fears and, and weaknesses and whatever. It was saying women want to know we are aware of our own internal experience and capable of regulating our emotional state. Dude, that, that's worth the price of admission right there for me. I mean, I'm going to use that. I'm going to tell my wife that. I'm going to talk to her about that. And, and I'm going to try it to say, okay, here are some things I'm struggling with, some feelings, some feelings. I don't have to go into the exact thing. Like, I'm afraid I'm going to lose this business deal. And we're going to go bankrupt. That, that's not what you're talking. It's, it's saying, well, explain it. I'll let you unpack that because that feels like a new territory. It feels like a, the concept of we think of doing no vulnerability. To do it, we think of over here and it often backfires. And you're saying, no, 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 no. There's a third way. Yeah. So un unpack that for us. Yeah. So, okay. There, I, I wrote about the myth of male vulnerability, which I, I think is where you got this part yeah. from the book, yeah, yeah. which I just want to just say one thing about 10 seconds. Culturally, there is a lot of pressure on men to be vulnerable. And the mm -hmm. challenge is, is that when a lot of men hear this notion, they're hearing it from their girlfriends, their spouses, women in culture and society, this sort of big uproar of like men need to be more vulnerable. But then two things happen. One, Men know that there's a risk for them being vulnerable, right? When you are vulnerable with your partner, she might shut down, she might reject it, she might get upset, she, you know, maybe she tries to fix it and solve it for you. And so there's this hesitancy that shows up in men. There's also the conundrum of you are less of a man if you're vulnerable, right? So there's there's that there's yeah. that sort of pressure. And then on the other side of it is the real question of, well, how the hell do I actually do that? <laughs> yeah. I have so many yeah. men ask me that, like she, you know, my wife is telling me to be more vulnerable. What in the world is she actually asking for? Because I thought I was doing it. And so here's, here's my take on this and we can explore this however you want. And I've seen this to work really, 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 really well. When a woman is saying, Hey, babe, I want you to be more vulnerable. I want you to open up. I want you to share more with me. What she's really saying is, I want to know that you know what's happening inside of you. Okay, so that's number one. I want to know that you know what's happening inside of you. What are you feeling? Are you feeling angry? Are you feeling anxious? Are you feeling shut down? Are you feeling disconnected? Are you feeling worried, afraid? What are you actually feeling? So I want to know that you know what's happening inside of you, number one. And number two, I want to know that you are able to communicate to me what's happening inside of you um, in a way that is authentic for you. And number three, 
I don't want to be responsible for it. I don't want to fix it. I don't want to solve it. I don't want to be your mother and caretake you through it. I want to be present to what you're experiencing. So in relationships, for the majority of women, what they're really looking for is, do I feel safe? Do I feel safe in this relationship? And a sign of safety and security, a sign of safety and security and intimacy is that a man is able to express what he is experiencing in a real, direct, and authentic way. Because for women, what they know is, one, it's very hard for a man to do that. Two, it's a risk for him to do that. So he's taking a risk. And three, he's going against the grain of what he probably has been told to do, right? Because most men, right, stuff it down, suck it up, et cetera. So if you as a man are able to say, okay, I'm, I'm feeling disconnected or I'm, you know, I've been, I've been feeling a little uh, angry about the situation at work and I don't need you to do anything about it. I don't need you to fix it for me. I don't need you to solve it, but I just wanted you to know that that's what I've been feeling. And for a woman, when she hears that, it's like, oh, you know, what's happening inside of you. You've been clear about what you need or don't need from me. and now I'm in the loop. I know what's happening inside of you. And for women, that's like, oh, I feel very safe. I feel very connected to you. I feel very safe with you. I feel like I understand what's happening inside of you. And that is a a kind of secret sauce. But what it requires from us as men is what we were talking about before, which is we have to begin to practice emotional mastery emotional understanding what's actually going on inside of us because i think the the big misconception about something like stoicism which has become very popular within our culture very popular online is that stoicism is about emotional disconnection which is not it is not about shutting down your emotions or ignoring them or simply using logic to move through them. It is actually about being in relationship, being in contact with what you're feeling and being able to regulate your nervous system and your mind and your body through it. So what do we do as men? And this is where I'll pause because I I think there's probably some follow-up questions. We practice this with other men. First and foremost, you get around other men and you do the hard uncomfortable, cumbersome thing of talking about what you are feeling, what you've been experiencing at work with your boss, the financial strains that you're having, the disconnection in your marriage and your relationship. You practice saying, hey man, this this is what I've been feeling. This is what I've been experiencing in my marriage. This is what I've been experiencing at work. And I don't necessarily need anything from you, but I just want you to know. And your buddy might say, cool, can I ask a couple of follow-up questions or can I challenge you on that? And in that way, we practice this kind of emotional mastery, this emotional self-understanding with our male friends so that when we bring it into our relationships, and this is the key thing, we have one, practice, and two, we are not turning our partner into our emotional processing center. What happens for most men is that they don't have any outlets to talk about what's happening inside of them. 
They don't have any other outlets with the men in their life to say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm really struggling. You know, my dad was diagnosed with leukemia a year ago, and I'm really struggling with the notion of his death. I don't know what it's going to be like. I'm sad that my kids aren't going to get to grow up around him. We don't have those outlets to have those deep, meaningful, emotional conversations. And so what happens is we start to open up in our relationship and all of a sudden our partner needs to bear the brunt of the full emotional weight of our life. And for some people, what happens is that their partners turn into their therapists or their coaches or they help them process all of their emotions and that can take a toll on the relationship. And so we need to practice having these types of conversations with other men. So maybe I'll just, I'll pause there because I think I said it on. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, it's, and, and I, I want to say, I mean, my gosh, your wife's a, th a therapist. That is a, if you, if somebody's hearing this and you don't know who you can turn to, that is a place, mm -hmm. go find a therapist, find a guy therapist, if you want to specifically where you can do this in a safe place and you can practice it if you don't have somebody that you can actually do that with. But you gave me another perspective, Connor, uh, and I'll, I'll kind of make a word or a picture out of it. If I was with, let's say, let's say that you're with your wife, or let's say that, you know, you meet a girl and, uh, you know, you guys are on a date or whatever. And you notice over time that this girl never eats. Mm. You've been with her for three days in a row and she has never eaten. At some point you're going to go, dude, do you like not eat? You're going to die. And you're, 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 there's a concern. You've got me thinking about that. That's, is that what, that's likely what our, what our, you know, what women are doing, let's, let's say our wives in our instance are doing, if they have, they have feelings, they're in touch with their feelings, they know their emotions and they talk about them and they don't need you to fix it. They're just sharing, but they're doing that and they never hear you do it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, would, I could see a fear being like, are, are you human or are you going to bust? Because if they didn't do it, they may feel like that. If I don't do that, I'm going to break down. I'm going to, I'm going to do something. I'm going to hurt myself. And that fear that they would have, if we never share that, if we always share that, this is what I did. No, I'm good, man. I'm always good. Always good, positive, 
I'm in route in right. What's the old church song in right, outright, upright, downright, happy all the time. <laughs> and they don't believe it. And so, yeah, they're living with this false thing. It's not true. We do have these feelings. So for you to say, okay, I share what, well, cause what you're saying too, though, comes back to the competent thing. Cause to be vulnerable would have me having to admit, you know what, I I'm doing this thing. I'm going to, you know, I'm interviewing somebody. I don't feel really competent. I don't know the, I don't know if I know the material. I, I struggle with imposter syndrome, um, whatever. And just to share the feeling that actually exists or gosh, something happened. And I'm a little concerned with, uh, well, actually I was going to say income, but that's one where that gets dicey because mm. you don't want to share that because that can threaten them. If I go share that with my friend, man, I'm struggling with, my, you know, with my work and my income, I can share that with a friend. Sometimes I don't want to share that with my wife, which you could say, well, that's being dishonest. And that's an issue in and of itself. But it also, it is a threat. So that probably brings up the aspect of having some people that you're going to share guys or whatever, that you're going to share some things with that you may not share over here. But you know, what is safe to share in a vulnerable way? I think you just opened up a whole different, again, a third way for us to understand what our wives need, what women need and why it makes sense. Again, the eating thing has me enamored at the moment. Of, <laughs> no, gosh, no, yeah, a, I would, I'd be thinking. It's a, it's a good, it's a good analogy. Cause we look, you're the, the women that you're with know that you're feeling something, right? They just know, they know maybe not all the time, but they know when you're angry, they know when you're shutting down, they know when you're feeling disconnected, they, they feel it, right? They feel it with you. Just like when your partner is upset, you feel it, right? You can tune into it. And so it, it feels very disingenuous and it feels like a threat to a woman when she yeah. says, what are you upset about? And you say, I'm not upset about anything. But internally, what you're experiencing is you're pissed off about something, right? So there's nothing more frustrating for a woman and nothing more, um, nothing that creates more sort of dissonance and I'm not safe than when she's tuned into something that you're feeling and you don't know, right? When she's dialed into like, oh, you're angry. And she says, how come you're angry? And you say, I'm not, I'm fine. But inside you're like, I'm freaking boiling. Right. She's like, oh shit. Her whole body goes on high alert. Her mind's on high alert. Like, what did I do? Am I okay? Are we okay? Is the relationship okay? Versus Hey, why are you so angry? And you can say, yeah, I am angry and I just need some time to sort it out. Or yeah, I am angry and I'm not really too sure why yet. I'll get back to you. Or yeah, I am angry. Are you open to talking about it? I mean, there's many different ways that you can go about it. But as soon as you acknowledge what is actually happening inside of you, it alleviates a lot of the pressure in the relationship. And so I think in the, in the book, I lay out like a few very simple steps to communicate what's happening inside of you in a way, in a very effective way that I have seen to work time and time and time and time again. And part of it is just saying, Hey, I'd like to share something with you. Are you open to that? And your partner's going to say, yeah, I am. Oh, okay, cool. Well, I just want you to know that I've been feeling pretty stressed out at work lately. You've probably felt it. And I don't, you know, I don't necessarily need to talk about anything with you, but I just wanted you to know that I've been feeling stressed out. And your partner's going to say, yeah. oh, okay. Well, thanks for letting me know. Is there anything else that you want me to know? Or if you ever want to talk, then let me know. Okay, no problem. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And you might also say, 
uh, I've been feeling stressed out at work, but you know, I'm talking to Greg or I'm talking to so-and-so about it and, um, and I'll let you know how things go. Right. So in that you're, you're identifying, you're, you're saying, can we connect? Right. So you're opening up the door for connection. Then you're stating what's happening inside of you, right? You're stating what you're experiencing. And then you're saying, here's what I either need from you or the resources that I'm using in order to navigate through this. That's the complete package, right? Not only for her, but for you to navigate through what you're experiencing. So th- these are like the simple steps of the, um, the competency the psychological yeah. and emotional competency that we were talking about before, the psychological emotional mastery. This is how we lead ourselves through hard emotions or tough things that we're experiencing. And I want to become more competent in that. I'll admit that in my own journey here, sometimes it's as limited to saying, because yeah, yeah, like you said, I, you can't you can't hide it. Uh, yeah. We had Lynn Twist on the show, renowned humanitarian, and she made this quip at some point. She said, "You know, you're you're, you're uh, something about your mood precedes you always." And I said, "Mood? That's interesting that you use that word." I, I would have said like attitude. She says, "No, I think it's your mood, man. People can smell that a mile away. So whatever you're feeling, your wife, significant other, kids, people, they know it. So why not just fess up to it?" And and in my limited way my start was sometimes just saying, look, I'm just feeling bad. I'm just feeling some negative emotions. It's not about you, hun. We're okay, but I just need time to process. And even just that, as opposed to, yeah, the the denial that she knows is a lie was just, I, I could see it. Well, as you said, just it was a comfort. Mm-hmm. It was a comfort. Like, and I, and you've got, actually got me thinking that it's probably an aspect of trust too, that my trust goes up when I do that, as opposed to just the denial and the, well, and, and I did want to hit on that. It's so much of your book. You come back to a certain thread of, I, I felt like it over and over. You came to it, or maybe I, I'm just hearing it in my head because I needed to, that we are, we are trained in suppression, which Makes sense. Again, if you're on the battlefield, if you're on the ball field, for me, if it was, you know, in a bike race, yeah, absolutely, man, you suppress everything and you just go. And that's great for those. I brought that into my marriage. I bought that. I brought that into relationships in general and it sucks and it doesn't work and it hurt me and it hurt other people and it still does. Mm. And I'm trying to come out of that. And I feel like that's what you're saying that we're, we're built. It makes sense over here. So we've got a double-edged sword. It makes sense over here, but over here, this is not in our relationships. It's not the place to suppress. We've been trained in that and it doesn't work. It doesn't make us feel good. It doesn't make the other person feel good. But man, that's a, that's a deprogramming and, and even more so when, again, it may still make sense over here. There may be some things with your work that, yeah, you need to suck it up. You need, do need to suppress that. Do what you got to do to pay the mortgage. Okay, fair enough. Well, no, but even there, I'm thinking you probably <laughs> say, no, you need to at least be open. You need to at least be honest with yourself, though, is what you'd say, yeah? Well, here's how, here's how I'll frame it, is that Einstein had this great quote. He said that the rational mind is a faithful servant. And the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. And we've created a culture that honors the servant, the rational mind, and has forgotten the gift, the intuitive mind. And so what I would say is we as men within our culture have 
vastly over-indexed our rational mind. And we expect our rational mind to solve all of our problems. The problem with that is that it can't. You cannot solve emotional problems with rational thinking. Most of the time, it's not workable. So we get into our relationships. What happens? We have the same problem over and over and over and over and over again. We have the same arguments with our partners over and over and over again. Why? Most of the time, because we as men are trying to solve these emotional issues and these emotional challenges without the data of how we're feeling. So your emotions are just data. They are just information. And we all have heard the stats, right? We all, we all heard like, oh, communication is uh, 80% nonverbal or whatever it is. I can't remember exactly the number. But the majority of communication is not about what you're saying. It is about how you're saying it and what you are feeling in your body as you're saying it. That is uh, our nervous system is a form of communication. So if you're a man who is constantly stressed out, overtaxed, overworked, exhausted, anxious, angry, and you come home to your partner and your kids or, you know, your partner and your dog, like, you know, whatever it is, or your partner and your cats. And what your whole body is experiencing is I'm pissed off. I'm exhausted. I hate work. I'm angry and frustrated. And you walk through the door and your partner says, how are you doing? And you're like, I'm good. But your whole body is sending out a signal of, I am not okay. Our partner will have such a dissonance in the experience of what they're hearing you say and what they're feeling you communicate. And so our work as men is to, to create congruency between what we're saying, what we're thinking, and what we're actually transmitting physically through our body. Your nervous system is what most people will interact with. How you feel, what you're experiencing internally, is what most people are going to interact with. And so you better start to learn the language of your body. You better start to learn the language of your emotional intelligence, the data that is being transmitted from your body, right? Again, this is maybe a little nerdy, but uh, when you look at the pathways between the brain and the body, it's an 80-20. 80% of the pathways are going from the body up into the brain through your, through your vagus nerve, and 20% of the pathways are going down into the body. So what does that mean? It means that our body is sending so much more data and information into our brain than our brain is sending down into our body. So what it means is that if you are a man who's disconnected from your body, you are disconnected from 80% of the information that you need to make decisions, to be in relationship, to have exceptional sex, to, you know, make good decisions within your career. You are disconnected from the information that is incredibly important to parenting, hanging out with your buddies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a time and place to compartmentalize? Maybe. Is there a time and place to suppress? I don't know about that. I mean, maybe in, you know, very high risk circumstances. But what we, what I can say is that the men that I have worked with who are exceptional athletes, musicians, executive CEOs, 
founders of companies at some point in their life will all work to train themselves to understand the information that's happening in their body, their gut intelligence, because that information is so important to every element of their life, presence, connection, relationships, intimacy, success, fulfillment, the whole gamut. So our work is to start to tune into what am I actually experiencing beneath my neck? Which, and I've mentioned this so many times, I was given the book, or I was told to get the book uh, by therapist to get Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. Mm. She said, dude, you need some, you need to increase your vernacular on emotions. And she lists out 87. And I'm like the typical guy who has like two, uh, may anger and maybe some disappointment. And that's about all I got. And, and disappointment to, to, know, to live, anger about the disappointment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. Anger about the, yeah, exa- exactly. Exactly. That's about it. And then she's bringing out and helped me understand she was, that was, it was reading through there that I understood a humiliation mm. and how that's a, such a relevant term. When, when X, Y, Z happens with something that said, what I feel humiliated. I never tapped into that. It helps me understand it more and reconcile it. And I, I, I mean, we could talk, yeah, every go buy the book, folks. And um, because this is something, even as I have prepared for this and gone through, Connor, I, I need to go marinate in what you wrote and figure out, okay, how do I walk this out? Just I, I'm reading a book on uh, we've got Terry Cole mm. coming up on the show on boundaries. <clears throat> and I oh no, I, I no, I already interviewed, I already had her on. I already had her on, but we haven't published yet. And now I'm going back through. And figuring out, okay, I got the points. I got to talk to her. Like I'm getting to talk to you, but now I and I need to dig in and start taking the knowledge into learning and actually apply that. So everybody needs to. Otherwise, we'd be here for three hours. I do want to land though on just the issue of pain because I still feel like guys do not want to associate with that word. They don't resonate with it, and I'm saying me too. But what you're helping me come to is. I do feel pain in the way of anger, disappointment, frustration, irritation, whatever it is, whatever the emotion that you know, but I do feel it. Don't judge it. Hmm. Don't judge. It just is. That's what I'm, I'm really working to come to. It just is. Don't judge it because judging it and saying it just makes it worse. It doesn't help at all. Even if I think that it may be stupid, I shouldn't do that. Like you talk about, we, we, you know, we, we, we constantly tell ourselves we shouldn't, it just is. So admit it. And then, and actually that's where I'm going to land is ask you, and then what? Cause I'm, I was playing with, do I then try to, I need to accept it. I need to try to reconcile it. I need to just start investigating it. What comes next? Yeah. Okay, cool. So the first thing that I would say is maybe consider that your pain is a path to purpose or is a part of purpose itself. So I'm going to come back and answer your question directly, but I just wanted to throw this in because for most men, they're like, why would I want to deal with my pain? (laughs) Why would I want to deal with? I'd rather go medic. Can I just have a glass of wine? Right. Like when I'm anxious, when I'm bored, when I'm lonely, like when I'm feeling these things, like I don't want to deal with that crap. And what I have said to so many men, like the the huge part of my book is, is shadow work and being able to face our own darkness, the parts of ourselves that we don't like, our inner critic, our you know, our, um, the way that we talk to ourselves, the way that we treat ourselves, sabotage, et cetera. And part of what I've said to a lot of men who are like, I feel like I don't have a sense of purpose. I don't have a mission. What I usually say is maybe consider for the time being that your pain is a purpose that learning to deal with, learning to navigate, learning to understand your own 
pain is a pathway to purpose that will put you in contact because you'll have to do some really hard things. You'll have to understand yourself. You'll have to confront yourself, et cetera. So the first part, as you're saying, is be able to witness what you are experiencing, whether it's anxiety, whether it's anger, whether it's there's grief or sadness. A big one that I think is under, uh, not underrated, that's not the way, right way to say it, but I think the big one that I've seen a lot of men feeling but not being able to articulate is shame. I think that yeah. so many of us as men, um, so many of the men that I have worked with are dealing with shame about countless things, shame of being abused, shame of not being feeling enough, uh, you know, shame of how they look, shame of their bodies, shame of their relationships, their actions, their decisions, et cetera. So step one, really get into contact with what am I experiencing internally? And step two is what is this experience asking of me? What is it trying to teach me or what is the lesson? So step two is, what is this experience or feeling trying to teach me? What's the lesson? What's the gift? Um, what's the action maybe even? And that question, you might need to sit down in a journal. You might know immediately. You might not be too sure. So you might have to go and explore that with a coach or a therapist or a psychologist. But most of the time, that emotion, that experience is trying to bring you some type of lesson. It might be that you need to go have a conversation. It might be that you need to, you know, let yourself break down. It might be that you need to let out some of the anger, you know, go find a punching bag or go tell a buddy. But it's trying to bring you a lesson. So that's step number two. And then step number three is if there's action, go take it, right? If there's an action that 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 pain that internal experience is asking for um like i'll just i'll say two things specifically because i think this is important anger and anxiety for a lot of men anger is a very common thing and so when you're feeling angry part of what might be uh coming up is that you're needing to build some kind of tolerance some kind of tolerance with that anger sitting with it. I used to do what's called a fire meditation. So when I was feeling really worked up, I would sit in silence, I'd close my eyes and I would just breathe and I would let myself feel the anger. Part of what we have to do is condition our bodies to regulate under that duress. So maybe the lesson that your anger is trying to teach you in the moment is to have more patience, is to be able to regulate your body when you're feeling dysregulated, is being able to use the breath to calm down when you're feeling worked up because maybe you're somebody that has a very short fuse and you've told yourself oh, i can't control my anger so maybe the lesson is no you actually it's not about controlling it it's about building tolerance with it it's about bu- building resiliency with it or maybe that there's a type of acceptance so anxiety is an example what's the lesson in anxiety most people are like i hate feeling anxious i don't want to feel anxious as soon as i feel anxious i judge it and i want to get out of it as soon soon as possible So maybe the lesson that the anxiety is trying to bring you is to accept it. Again, maybe the process is somewhat similar to sit, to breathe into it, to remind yourself that you're safe, that you're okay when you're feeling anxious, but to find some type of uh, acceptance within that anxiety. So those are, those are some of the steps with hopefully some very like clear articulation of what that might look like. 
That's awesome. Thank you. And, and again, I, you know, I always shamelessly promote the books, but I'm going to do it even more so here. And I'm actually going to put this in the intro, Connor, that for guys hearing this, who hear the value, want to participate, one, get the book so you can work through it. But if you want to, as you so often said, practice this, mm-hmm. work through this, find some guys, buy somebody else a book. That's, that's my first thought. I'm going to go buy, I'm going to go get books for my, my, uh, four guys that I meet with on Fridays and go through it together. That's not an uncommon thing for guys to do anyways, or any group together, go through a book together, but on this one to go through it and then knowing you're going to have those people or hoping you're going to have those people then to say, okay, let's practice. Mm. So what are you feeling? And you know, you can sit there and laugh about it if you need to for a minute or whatever, but yeah, cause guys don't do this. But if we look at it, as you say, this is a path. Well, in the book, to, the book is chock full yeah. of exercises, right? It's it's meant yeah. to be a yeah. like part teaching, part workbook, and so each chapter has you know questions for you to answer, exercises for you to do, um, and yeah. So if you're if you're a guy that that you know you're gonna have to do some work, um, and if you're a woman, I think a lot of women have have bought the book and had a much deeper level of understanding about the men in their life. And so that's, that's been, that's been that's an interesting thing, too. the amount of women that have read the book and said, wow, I, I actually really understand my dad, my brother, my husband, my boyfriend way better because I have a context for what it must be like to be in his experience. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. No, I'm, I'm writing that down. I'll promote that too at the, at the intro. That, that's a great point. Uh, matter of fact, it wasn't that long ago that my wife mentioned 20 years ago, probably when I got the book wild at heart mm. by John Eldridge, mm-hmm. she read it and it gave her so much, actually, she said understanding for me, but it really helped her understand my first bull, my first kid, mm. my first son to understand that and to quit, you know, coddling him and, and, and whatnot and let him be wild at heart to some degree. And I totally agree, man, to get this book, man. Thank you. Thank you, Connor. Yeah. I, 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 that's probably about like a third of my notes, but, uh, that's why people need to go get the book and we'll continue a little bit in part two together. But man, thank you for putting this together, for having the, um, the insight and the courage to put it out. And I hope that, uh, the guys hearing this have the courage to go dig in. Um, thank you. I will be working on my own courage to get into the pain here and work it out. Thank you, Connor. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you for joining us on this journey to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others. Again, Connor's book is called Men's Work, A Practical Guide to Face Your Darkness, End Self-Sabotage, and Find Freedom. His really popular podcast you can scroll to right now. Uh, Again, I was recently a guest on it. It's called Man Talks. Uh, Coming up next is my What Drives You episode with Connor, and we talk about what drives him as an individual, as a spouse, as a father, as a friend, as a man. If you appreciate this podcast and want to share it with others, please rate the show on Spotify or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe on YouTube to watch the full episodes and find me on social media at KevinMillerCO. And if you want to learn how to master your own inner drive, get my book, What Drives You, on Amazon. Until next time, stay driven.